Hello, and welcome to Essential Work, exploring the past, present, and future of jobs. This podcast brought to you by the Battle of Homestead Foundation. I'm Nathan Ruggles. Thank you so much for listening. Each week, we bring you stories and struggles, people and perspectives, interviews and commentaries, all on the world of work yesterday, today, and tomorrow. We look at the most important issues people face on the job through a unique lens of history and time and music. If you're a history buff, if you appreciate human-centered stories, if you face your own challenges on the job, if you're curious about what the workplace of the future will look like, if you're left dissatisfied with typical newsy talk that's devoid of perspective, either grounded in the past or without looking ahead, if you enjoy how music can provide an artistic window into issues, this is the podcast for you. Here in our sixth episode, we'll hear about the issues facing immigrant workers from Latin America here in the U.S., and in particular, those who are undocumented, with Guillermo Perez from the Labor Council of Latin American Advancement, or LACLA. We will also talk Puerto Rico, baseball, and a special upcoming online event. After that, we will hear from Larry McCullough of the Battle of Homestead Foundation with their latest online events before we wrap up, as we do, with a music selection. Though this episode, we actually get not just one, but two songs. But first, our chat with Guillermo Perez of LACLA, in which we take a look back as well as forward. We're back, and with me is Guillermo Perez, the uh, president of the local chapter here in Pittsburgh of LACLA. Uh, Guillermo, I'd like to welcome you to Essential Work. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, thanks for having me, Nathan. So uh, I first want to mention that you you wear a variety of hats um, <laughs> in addition to being the president of, of the, the Pittsburgh chapter of LACLA. Uh, first of all, tell us, what what is LACLA? So uh, it's LCLAA. It stands for the Labor Council for Latin American Advancement. It is one of uh, six AFL-CIO recognized constituency groups. These are different sort of communities within organized labor. So in our case, LACLA is the Latino. We call it the Latino House of Labor. This is the uh, Latino caucus within organized labor. And it was established back in the early 70s. It's been around for a while. I became involved uh, many years ago, and then I moved to Pittsburgh to, to go to work as a labor educator for the International of the United Steelworkers based in Pittsburgh. And at that time, I was invited by then-President Leo Girard to represent the United Steelworkers on the National uh, Executive Board of LACLA. And um, I had been active in, a, in local chapters before that. So I was delighted to do it, but at the same time, I felt like, you know, my focus at the national level is going to be building chapters. I should build a chapter in Pittsburgh. It would make sense. And so we built one. Absolutely. Well, here's what happened. I mean, we're going to talk about immigration because it's a major focus of LACLA. So it makes sense to talk about this. We were in the midst of a of what was the latest of a series of huge uh, waves of immigration to the United States. The biggest one, of course, was at the turn of the the, the 19th century. Um, at that point, we had 15% of the, the population of the United States was foreign born. And that was the period where we had huge influx of immigrants from Eastern and Southern Europe. 
And they were obviously in Pittsburgh. They were hugely central to, to, to Pittsburgh, but also many cities all over the all over the country. And then we get into the 1920s, and that's that's when uh, serious restrictions were put on immigration in the U.S. And we basically went, you know, you know, 50 years without um, very much in the way of uh, of immigration to the country. So we have this very rich history. You know, people would talk about the Statue of Liberty. I mean, before the present administration, people used to actually think of the United States as a country that that was built not entirely, but but in a huge way by by immigrants, right? And very rich history of immigration, especially here in Pittsburgh. It's 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 amazing. The industrial unions would not have have come into being without immigrants and immigrant labor. Dating back even farther, right, to the 1900s and. Well, as I said, there's been a there were there were massive waves of immigration. There were a couple before this one I just talked about, but then the latest one is one that basically took place after uh, major changes in the immigration law in the mid 1960s. It really changed the demographics of the United States. We had immigrants from um, parts of the world that previously hadn't hadn't been here in major numbers. People from South Asia, for example, um, uh, and we had. And is starting really in the late 70s, 80s, a massive immigration from Latin America, most especially Mexico, but also from all over Latin America. And it transformed cities all over the country. So even a city like Cincinnati may not have had a lot of uh, Hispanics, um, maybe in the 70s, but but I guarantee you there's a huge community there now. We see it cities like Milwaukee, huge Mexican community in Milwaukee, um, Minneapolis, um, you know, Nashville. Uh, Des Moines. Um, so this was a, a, a huge trend that largely escaped Pittsburgh uh, until relatively recently. So so it's been a growing Latino community here in Pittsburgh. It's doubled in size in the last 10 years. Um, but I say that's why, but we're still in Allegheny County, we're, we're, we're 2% of the population. That, that's a little odd um, when you look at other, other medium-sized cities like, like Pittsburgh. Uh, you've seen um, much more. But a part of that had to do w- with the lure of jobs. There just weren't a lot of jobs here that would lure a lot of um, immigrants for, for much of that time. That's 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 changing. It's still changing. We're doing everything we can to encourage that change. We need it demographically sure. in the city, economically. We we need it. The city, um, you know, the mayor has a whole task force that, that I was a part of that looked at policies that we could implement to try to attract immigrants it's you know they're going to be key to the economic future of the city um and so we were very excited i had a i have some of the best activists in pittsburgh i'm bragging on myself but it's true are are involved in our chapter (laughs) okay you're allowed well we've worked very closely with a wonderful community-based organization here called casa san jose that's been um you know, when when we started our relationship with them, they were relatively small. Now they are the premier organization when it comes to um, addressing issues impacting immigrants here locally. And so I and I you talk about wearing hats. I sit on their board. And uh, the executive director sits on my board of LACLA, um, Monica Ruiz, incredible activist. As I said, they're, they're really, really good people here in Pittsburgh. It's a growing community. But it's suffering from all of the, the the same issues that are impacting immigrant communities all over the country, and most especially undocumented immigrant communities. And so that's focus of of uh, of our LACLA chapter is doing everything we can um, to embrace um, uh, 
uh, undocumented immigrants as well. We see them as being a key to our future uh, as a labor movement. And the labor movement's very pro-immigrant uh, as well, including very much favoring immigration reform that will eventually allow um, millions of undocumented people to come out of the shadows and have status and eventually become citizens, just as we did, just as the generations way back who came from Southern and Eastern Europe, right? Sure, sure. They helped build our unions. Their, their children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and great-grandchildren are with us to this day. And um, this will be the same. So that's that's partly why we started our chapter here was to was to sort of mm-hmm. do all that we could to support this community to build this community. And speaking as a Latino myself, I wanted to see it. I want to see better food <laughs> and culture here in the city uh, when it comes to you know if you want to get a you know if you want to get a good taco or if you want to um, uh, get some good tostones, um, you know. Now you can more so than you could in the recent past. Um, and certainly we're doing our part every year when we celebrate Hispanic Heritage Month. We make a point of having authentic um, comida puertorriqueña in this case, because we honor Clemente. Well, but go, kind of I was going to go back to a couple of things you mentioned. So mm-hmm. we mentioned like 2% of the population yeah. um, in Pittsburgh. Allegheny County. To the county, yeah, where Pittsburgh is is lies. Um, 2% you mentioned. So nationally, we're talking, what, 10, 10, 12, 15 at this point? Overall, oh, it's more like 18, 18%. Yeah, no, okay. it's, it's okay. significant. And obviously, if you go to other parts of the state, especially Philly, the the, the numbers are, 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 are huge, right? Much, much larger in the eastern, eastern part of the state. But as I said, it's a, it's a dynamic that's, that's, um, um, that's changing. It's changing the, the, the demographics of the city in a positive way. And, um, and we want to be part of that change. We're doing everything we can to make Pittsburgh a welcoming city. Um, I wouldn't go so far as to call it a, um, a sanctuary city. We're not, we're not there yet, but we're working on it. And certainly um, we're making it, we're doing everything we can as, as a lack the chapter um, to make um to make this city as 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 welcoming as possible for immigrants, their families, um, regardless of their regardless of their their status, and um, so we hold an event um, every year to celebrate Hispanic Heritage Month that's specifically focused on raising money uh, to go to assist um, immigrant families, and in the last several years, specifically, we've been raising money to assist. Families who've been impacted by um, uh, by by ICE, the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency. Um, uh, so I, I, I mean, we can talk about that, but um, absolutely, absolutely, we definitely have to get to that because I know um, you have that event coming up um, later this week. In, in fact, right, but um, you know, because on this podcast, we like to talk about right where we've been as well as you know how we got to where we are, right. So just to just to clarify, so going back to that um, wave of immigration that began after the changes in the immigration laws in sixties and seventies. Mm-hmm. So one reason it passed over Pittsburgh, and I'm sure this this may not may have happened in other cities as well, is is, is Pittsburgh went on economic decline. Right. There was just wasn't the job opportunities, unlike other parts of the country, right? Where there were um, opportunities for workers from Latin America, 
to to come and and, and the opportunities were there and folks came and took those jobs. Right. I mean, it's the same, Nathan, it's the same historically. It's the same, you know, immigrants historically have come to the United States in search of a better life. We talk about the push and pull factors that lead people to leave, um, to make a huge change like that. Um, Pull factor has always been work and the opportunity for jobs. And if the jobs aren't there, you know, immigrants don't Immigrants don't come. They 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 come here to work. They're you know in my experience in because I've represented immigrants in, uh, uh, as a labor rep, and I've represented undocumented immigrants. Every major union in the country has undocumented members, um, and I can tell you um, they're like every other member I've ever represented. They have the same needs. They're trying to make a decent living. They're trying to get home safely. They're trying to to have something for their children. They're trying to build a future. They're, they're, you know, they want respect and dignity on the job. They, I mean, it's, it's, it's no different, um, in that, uh, sense, whether folks are documented or undocumented or native born or what, or what, or what have you. Um, the issue of their status though, is something that is, that is unique to this particular wave of immigration. And it's often pointed out by people who are opponents uh, to it, who will talk about, well, my family came here the right way and blah, 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 without really. (laughs) We basically had practically open borders for much of the history of the United States. And the generation that came through Ellis Island, most of those people would not have been allowed in the country if they were trying to immigrate here under our current laws. So very few people were turned away from Ellis Island. If you could, if you could pay for your freight to get on the boat, you would get here. Sure. And that's basically uh, how it worked. And the current system we have is totally is totally broken, in the sense that it's not it's not um, it's not built to try to address what the needs are for labor uh, and to meet those needs in a way that would give people opportunities to come here legally. That's the basic problem. You know, if you're, if you're a heart surgeon or professional baseball player or hockey player, uh, you'll get a visa and you'll be able to come to the United States. But if you're, uh, you know, if you're a roofer, if you're, if you're, you know, you do landscaping, you work in a, you know, you're a, a cook in a restaurant, you're, you work in a hospital laundry, um, you know these blue-collar jobs that that uh, we need. Uh, if you if you're a farm worker, I mean, conservatively, half the farm workers in the United States are undocumented. We see oh, in construction, agriculture, food processing, we have whole sectors of the economy that are dependent on undocumented immigrants. We'd be in terrible trouble if if they weren't here. And now during the pandemic, many essential workers are undocumented. Um, so this is a problem where the policy doesn't meet the the needs of the economy. And so that's why we try trying to make clear is that immigrants aren't here taking jobs. Immigrants are actually here creating jobs. They're supplementing the workforce that we have. The the labor who works on a residential construction site who, who who's undocumented, their labor creates opportunities for the for the other workers on that site, many of whom are native born. Um, again, if you don't have laborers, then how do the carpenters get work on that construction site? Um, I've got unions from the trades who call me, um, at least a couple times a year looking for folks to try to 
to recruit. Right now, there's a shortage of people who can do who who are uh, drywall finishers. Oh man, there's a ton ton of very skilled undocumented immigrants who do that work, and unfortunately, they, there's not a there's not a path for them into the skilled trades. Um, but there are opportunities for them. In the union. That's because of their status. Because it's status. because they lack they 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 lack authorization to work. In the United States, so and, again, it's a, dis, it's a it's a disconnect between what the the demands are, the stereotype of immigrants coming here to to you know use services to um, take jobs from um, uh, native born people. It's a myth, and it's not it's not accurate. Immigrants, including undocumented immigrants, are a net plus economically to the country, and demographically, we need them. Desperately. I mean, right now, if you want to look at even in, in this Social Security fund, there are billions and billions of dollars in in Social Security right now. <laughs> they can't be matched to legitimate Social Security numbers. That's all the money the undocumented are paying in payroll taxes that pours into Social Security. They're actually they're actually subsidizing uh, our Social Security system. Yeah, they're paying for the, for the checks. Um, for all of the retirees right now. Well, you know how Social Security works, right? You, it's the, the current retirees are getting money from the people who are putting into the system. If you've got, you know, millions of undocumented people putting money into the system that they that that they they can't uh, have any hope of drawing down, they're they are subsidizing uh, our Social Security system. The point of the matter is, if we had an immigration system that said. There's a demand for drywall finishers. There's a demand for roofers. There's a demand in the restaurants. Uh, there's a demand in food processing. There's a demand in agriculture. Why don't we have an immigration system that gives people the opportunity um, to come here uh, and do that work? And if they choose to stay, they stay. And if they if they choose to go back, they'll go back. By the way, the Ellis Island wave of immigrants, they, I, many of them did go back. If you talk to, if, especially the Italian immigrants, huge numbers came and huge numbers went back to Italy because they said, you know what, I'd rather go back to, <laughs> I'd rather go back to Italy. Um, but obviously many, many of them stayed. And that's all to our good. I mean, the contributions are tremendous. And, and especially for me as a steel worker, the contributions, we, the industrial unions, as I said, would, would not exist if not for uh, immigrant labor. The, the CIO was in part funded by um, immigrants in the needle trades, right? They were all um, uh, all immigrant workers in the, in the needle trades, and they paid for the organizing of steel in this city. And what era are we talking about? We're talking about the 1920s and 30s. Yeah, yeah. So, so I do want to, you know, something you mentioned, you know, we call this, this podcast is essential work for a reason. <laughs> and uh-huh. uh, you mentioned about uh, essential workers and, and a lot of these jobs that, that um, folks, uh, the undocumented immigrants are, are filling. And, and just so, you know, people are clear too, when it comes to like um, work visas and, and how many are available or not available. Mm-hmm. and then. And, and, and two, in terms of quotas that may, may or may not be from, from one country, or another country. I mean, like you said, the system right now is not working effectively. 
Uh, would you say in terms of of those, you know, work visas being available or not being available, or quotas existing that that keep people from being able to get in that line that you know you mentioned before are it just functional, yeah the middle right? line it's it's um look the, the the system we have right now is largely built around family family unification which is which is good we need to have families unified right i think that's i think that's fine it's just the unfortunate thing is that if you know if you're a working class person in in mexico or el salvador or or, um, um, you know, any, anywhere in the, in the world, if you want to come to the United States, it's virtually impossible. It's not a system that's built for working class people to be able to, to come, come to the United States. You have to have either very highly specialized skills that are very much in demand, or if you're a multimillionaire, you can buy your way in. That's, that's, you know, if you have that, and and as I said, if you're a, you know, if you're a, a professional athlete um, or a brain surgeon, I mean, we have certainly here in Pittsburgh, and it's wonderful. We have there are many many immigrants with with high levels of education who work in in healthcare and work in at the universities here in the city, and and they're great. They're wonderful. I'm I'm thrilled that they're here. But we also need people who, right, we need roofers and we need landscapers to work in restaurants and we need people to clean houses and we need people to take care of kids and we, we need landscapers and we definitely need agricultural workers and food processors. We need those folks. And they, there's, you know, they can't, that, that need cannot be met with the, the workforce we currently have. So there are different ways of addressing that. One way is to create guest worker programs. We are strongly against guest worker programs because um, they they're I've not seen a guest worker program that didn't lead to the, the the worst kinds of exploitation and suffering for the people in those programs. If you want to go back to the um, to the Braceros program here in the United States, it, the stories were horrific. So guest worker programs. Uh, and when, when was that? When was that program? That was in the 19. It started actually uh, in the 40s, again, to try to address the, the demand for labor. Um, and it finally ended in the 1960s. It actually ended, I believe, with this immigration uh, bill in the in 65 that, that had a, a major impact. But um, the point I'm trying to make is a guest worker program is a program that we absolutely have to resist. We don't want any additional guest workers, um, what we need is a program that allow people to come. And if they choose to stay, they stay. And if they choose to go back where they came from, then they go back where they came from. Um, uh, but a guest worker program is, is, is as bad. Actually, I would argue it's worse than having 11 million undocumented immigrants here in the country. And when you say guest workers, that would be folks that would want to be here for a, a shorter duration they're here temporarily. They're they're they they for for my union brothers and sisters. They you know this well. In your own workplace, uh, you know people who are brought from 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 temp agencies. They're paid poorly. They're treated poorly. They they're never you know they're not provided anything in the way of of of, of benefits and and other things. They are second class uh, workers in any workplace. The people who come from temp agencies. And um, we don't need that. That's not good for the workers themselves, and it's not good for everybody else. And if you want something that is going to drive down wages and working conditions, start 
investing in expanded guest worker programs because they'll be terrible. I don't ever want to have to organize guest workers. I, I don't want it to come to that. I think it'll be, it'll be a, a nightmare. Um, and so what we need is we need an immigration um, policy in this country, that, as I said, that will allow working class people to come here and, and help meet the, the demand for their labor. And there's tremendous demand for their labor. And there will be going into the future. And demographically, we need them. We need young working age people to come to the United States because, you know, <laughs> you can't you can't have huge numbers of people being retired on Social Security without a growing workforce to help pay for that. And so it, it's a it's a win in so many different ways. Um, it's 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 good economically. It's beautiful culturally. It's wonderful. It enriches our lives so tremendously. And so, um, and as a trade unionist, as I said, I think it's in keeping with our history as a, as a, as a, as a labor movement. Organized labor has been historically, for the most part, very hostile towards immigrants, but that changed um, 20 years ago in the AFL. And both major labor federations are very much in favor of supporting undocumented workers and achieving comprehensive immigration reform that will address this issue of status. And finally put us in a, in a good footing as a country. Well, and I appreciate something you said earlier in terms of the commonalities uh, of folks who are within the union, whether they're documented or not, in terms of just wanting decent wages, of wanting dignity on the job. But, but unfortunately, those who are undocumented do have those additional challenges that, that you, you've described. Now, um, you know, you also mentioned those, uh, um, to get back um, to um, what you have coming up here uh, locally um, with, with. Yeah. With, see, uh, I told you I can talk yeah, on and on. We're now finally getting to this good stuff. <laughs> the reason you originally yeah. invited me on onto the program. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because uh, you you have an event coming up that is going to be raising money for these different causes that you've, you've just been talking about the different issues that you're working on. Correct. Right. So when we, when we started our chapter in LACLA, um, we thought it was important for us to have a labor, a labor sponsored event for Hispanic Heritage Month. The, you know, if you look around, Hispa Hispanic Heritage Month is largely observed uh, uh, by, by corporate entities. You know, the NFL will do stuff. Major League Baseball will do stuff. Different corporations will do stuff. And we were looking around as where are the labor unions? Why aren't the labor unions celebrating Hispanic Heritage Month? So we're going to celebrate it. And being Pittsburgh, you know, we're not known for a huge Latino community. So we're thinking about, okay, we're going to celebrate all the different sort of Latino cultures we have here. Um, and then uh, I forget who I was speaking to gave me this great idea. Said, you know, why don't you do something to honor Roberto Clemente? I said, well, of course, Roberto Clemente. He's the most famous Latino associated with Pittsburgh. He's beloved in the city. He has a bridge name for him. He has a beautiful statue outside the ballpark. People love Clemente. And Clemente's story is a great, great, uh, story. Uh, an amazing man come, you know, with a very humble background who is, um, Afro Puerto Rican, right? He comes to Pittsburgh. So, so he's, he's, you know, he's, uh, uh, he's welcomed by the African-American community here, but also understanding that he's also culturally from another, another culture in many respects. And he's having to learn English and, and um, and he's coming into Major League Baseball a short time after um, it was um, 
Jackie Robinson and everything had had happened to allow uh, African Americans to play Major League Baseball. He started back in the fifties. Yeah, he started in the late fifties. When he started, they were expected to stay in different hotels. There was, I mean, they would, you know, you go to spring training and you were in the South, and and he was just shocked by it. It wasn't anything like he had seen growing up in Puerto Rico. Obviously, there was racism there, but 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 not like anything he had he had seen here in the United States. And it turned him into an activist. He was involved in the civil rights movement. He was involved in the Baseball Players Association. He was the first Latino. Uh, ever to serve on the executive board of the Players Association, he was um, um, he was just an incredible guy in Puerto Rico. He's beloved, um, and then add all that, you know, he was a fantastic baseball player. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> there's just no getting around that. He was he was he was fantastic. You talk to people here in Puerto Rico, a Hall of Famer, him. a Hall right. of Famer. I think he was the youngest one to to be inducted into the Hall of Fame. And then he had a very tragic ending. He he had gone to um this was the early 70s he gone to nicaragua after uh, an earthquake there um he had actually been there before because you know you used to be you latin american players well all kinds of baseball players would play in the latin american leagues um and so he was very well known throughout latin america he was coaching a puerto rican team in, in nicaragua um and he he was in managua and he was very moved by people there. And so when they got hit by the earthquake, he wanted to do something to help them. In Managua, down there, the capital there, Nicaragua. Uh, of Nicaragua, yeah. And um, at that time, uh, you had uh, the Somoza dictatorship was there. And uh, Clemente was told, well, you know, they're stealing your relief supplies. They're, they're not getting to the people who need it. The only way they're going to, the, the people who need it are going to get these supplies is if you you go there yourself with them and he did and he never he never got there his plane his plane um, crashed disappeared actually he was there there, his remains were never recovered um so it's a very tragic ending but an amazing life and an amazing figure and an ideal you know a man definitely worth celebrating for hispanic heritage month here in pittsburgh so we we named our event que viva clemente long live clemente and we celebrate his legacy. And we have um, wonderful Puerto Rican food, like really good Puerto Rican food and um, music. And uh, it's been a wonderful event. But obviously, this year with the pandemic, we can't have an in-person event as we have in years past. I'm sorry, how many years? It started in 2014. And um, so this year, we're going to do a virtual event. It's going to be this Saturday, October 10th. Um, uh, 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 we're going to stream it on Facebook. So if you go to the LACLA, Pittsburgh LACLA Facebook page, you'll be able to um, to watch the webcast. We're going to have a terrific tribute to uh, Clemente. We got some of our members that are in Puerto Rico put together a piece remembering Clemente. One of the steelworker local presidents met Clemente when he was a kid. Uh, he was an aspiring baseball player. He did actually play professional baseball. Um and he talks about what Clemente meant to Puerto Rico. And the people of Pittsburgh know what Clemente meant here, too. I mean, he's, as I said, he's beloved here. I think his jersey is still one of the most popular jerseys that the, that the Pirates have. So it's a great it's a great evening. And then we raise money, the, mostly from the labor unions, step up and give money. And um, in years past, we've used the money um, to fund a bond fund. It's called the Fondo Solidario de Pittsburgh, the, the, the Solidarity Fund of Pittsburgh. And we lend money to families who have a family member who's been detained by ICE. 
If they can get uh, a bond, we can get them out of ICE detention. If we can get them out of ICE detention, their chances of staying in the country are much improved. And then obviously to be in ICE detention right, there, right now during the pandemic is just horrific. So um, we've, we've raised tens of thousands of dollars over the years for this fund. It's helped a bunch of families, and we're going to be raising money again on Saturday. So folks want to contribute to the fund, um, check out the, the webcast, um, go to our LACLA, uh, Pittsburgh LACLA Facebook page. Uh, the organization that runs the fund is Casa San Jose. Um, you can also check them out. You can give directly to the bond fund if you like. This year, we're going to split the money between half of it will go to the bond fund and the other half is going to go to a relief organization. It's called the Comedores Sociales. It's an organization in Puerto Rico um, that, um, that helps feed folks. And right now, with the pandemic, uh, many of the schools are shut down. And for a lot of kids, that's where they get um, a significant amount of their food is, uh, is through school. Uh, and as we know, Puerto Rico has been through such an ordeal. Uh, Nathan, um, economically, well, it was already in a terrible recession, a horrible amount of debt. It's a neoliberal nightmare what the, what the financial sector has done to Puerto Rico is criminal. Um, and then add to that uh, Hurricane Maria and the devastation that caused. And now they, in January, they had earthquakes and now they have a, a pandemic. So the situation is very dire in Puerto Rico. So we wanted um, as part of honoring Clemente, was to use some of this money um, to erect relief in Puerto Rico. So I do hope folks who uh, who love Clemente, who want to support our community here in Pittsburgh, will check out uh, check out the webcast on Saturday at 7 p.m. October 10th on the Pittsburgh Lack of Facebook page, and you can get information there on how to how to make a, a donation. Excellent, and we'll make sure to have links um, to all those things, um, both the donation page as well as the event. We'll make sure those are in our episode description. So, uh, folks, you can just check it out right there and uh, click on it. Now, will people be able to donate both b before, during, and after the event? If yeah, they, if before, during, to? and after. If you go to, again, the organization is called Casa San Jose uh, in Pittsburgh. Uh, if you go to their Facebook page and you want to make a donation, they'll give you an option. One of the options is Que Viva Clemente. So if you make your donation there, then your donation will be split between the bond fund and the relief, uh, hunger relief in Puerto Rico. Excellent. If you just want to give to the bond fund, that's another option on the, on, uh, on the page as well. Um, and there is, if you actually register for, for it, we'll, we'll, we'll share information for that. But we're also working um, with a, a local uh, uh, Boricua entrepreneur here. He's He's got his own Puerto Rican kitchen. He does take out. It's good Puerto Rican food. And so we're plugging him, too, because he's going to, part of his sales, will we'll go towards our, our Clemente um, event. Uh, his business is called Mi Abuela Secreto, My Grandmother's Secret. And um, <laughs> it's good, brother. So, it's good. So is is is, uh, is he using his grandmother's secret recipe? Ah, well, <laughs> I don't know if it's that much of a secret. It's just good. It's just good Puerto Rican food. But you're not gonna, you know, it's very hard to come by here in in south south uh, southwestern PA. So, uh, and he's kind enough. He's gonna donate part of his proceeds. So, if people want to get in the mood, uh, get your takeout, your Puerto Rican takeout. Sit down. And get ready for a great tribute. Oh, and we're going to have lots of really good Puerto Rican music. A couple different bands on the island stepped up and uh, re 
did recordings for us for the event. So if you want to learn about Puerto Rican music, um, um, check that out as well. So we're very excited about all the the, the, the music as well. Well, excellent. And, and Larry McCullough, uh, who does communications and does our weekly um, song selection for the podcast, he's going to be featuring some of that music here. Oh, great. Um, Wonderful. After this interview on the program. So, um, but yeah, we'll, we'll um, Casa San Jose, the registration, we'll make sure to have all those links in the in the episode description. So I encourage everyone to hop on there. If, if you're in the Pittsburgh area and, and you want some good food, here's a great opportunity to not only support uh, local food. Yeah, you got to go pick it up. You got to go pick it up. Because he doesn't well, hey, deliver. Hey, that's all right. That's all right. You it's know, worth it, um, though. I'm telling you, it's worth it. Get, get out of the house. Go down there and get your food. <laughs> some really good food. Support local business and, and support a great cause at the same time. And um, and just remind us, what, what time is the event? It's going to be 7 p.m. On Facebook, um, uh, it'll be a webcast, so you just gotta you just gotta make your way to the Pittsburgh LACLA Facebook page, LCLAA, and um, and and check it out, and you'll love it, and we'd love to have you. And uh, and a free event, right? Anyone? Oh, of course, it's free. Absolutely, we're trying to get people to register, but obviously, you know, you can jump on Facebook, you'll see it. But the idea is to raise money. So, so um, yeah. So if you haven't celebrated Hispanic Heritage Month, this is it, man. This is your last chance. It ends October 15th. So here you go. From September 15th to October, October 15th. 15th so. Yes. Yep. So, so we so always fit excellent. it in there. We got it just in, just before the, the month closes out. So everybody should do something to observe the month. And um, man, this is the best way to do it, especially if you get the food and you check out the music and then you learn about all this great work that's going on in ways that you can plug in and support it. Excellent. And uh, here on the podcast, we we not only, you know, we, we've talked a bit about the history, we've talked about what's going right now. Um, before we go, I, I would like to hear from you in terms of what do you see as the future for this event, as well as for your chapter and the work that you're doing, how do you see it evolving in, uh, you know, next year and the years to come as we move outside of this pandemic? Uh, where do you see it going? Where do you hope that it goes? Well, the way, where I see it going ultimately is that we'll get back on track. We, in, in 2013, there was a bipartisan bill that got passed in the U.S. Senate that would have created a path to citizenship. It wasn't perfect, but in retrospect, oh my God, if we had gotten it, things would be dramatically different. Much better than what we've had, it's safe to say. What we have now is horrific. What we have now is hor- is horrific. We have families who are who are um, living in constant fear of being separated. Um, you know, we're having right now, we're working on a bill in, in um, Harrisburg that allows that would allow undocumented immigrants to get access to driver's licenses. We, they, that's the case in six, I think it's six other states, not here in PA. Up until I think 2002, they could, but they changed the law and required a social security number. So, you know, every time, and, and you know, for many parts, in various parts of the, of the state, if you don't have a car, you don't work. So, you know, something as basic as being able to get a driver's license and have a form of identification and to be able to drive to work or to drive to the hospital or to take, go to your kid's school meeting. I mean, this is a necessity, that, and, and it pains me that this is what we have to focus on is to try to get 
something so basic like that. What we obviously need is comprehensive immigration reform. That's what we need. In 2013, you had Republicans and Democrats who would vote for an uh, 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 immigration reform bill that would give millions of people the opportunity to come out of the shadows and get on a path to citizenship. And the only reason it didn't become a law is because uh, the, the Speaker of the House, John Boehner, wouldn't allow it to come to the floor. He knew the votes were there. And it's hard to remember that now, given everything that we've been through recently. People forget. But it's still the case. Most people in this country favor immigration reform that would that would allow a path to citizenship. That's still the majority view. And it's certainly um, the position of the AFL-CIO and the Change the Wind Federations and obviously LACLA. It's, it means everything to us. This is, you know, the undocumented are part of our community They and we need them and they need us. And so that's my hope is that change will come, that, that we'll, we'll remember where we came from, embrace the immigrant history that made this country great, and that we'll make it <laughs> I'm not going to say that, that will make it a much better country in the future. But understanding immigration is a good thing. It's been good for us historically. It will be good for us in the future. And it'll be good for organized labor. I want to make that clear to my brothers and sisters in, in the unions out there. This is We will turn our movement around in part by organizing huge numbers of, of immigrants into our labor unions. And that's, that's, that's what LACLA wants to see most especially. We want the immigrants here. We want them to have good working conditions and good pay and have a have the resources they need to have a decent future here. And we know that in the United States and anywhere in the world, the only way that happens is if you join a union. That's how that happens. Well, I, I can say that, um, you know, I, I appreciate your optimism. I appreciate, you know, looking to the future of what, what where we can go as a people, where we can go as a country and and certainly everything you've told us here today um the things you've explained the history that we've talked about giving folks more insight into uh the struggles of latino workers here in this country um i'm sure it has contributed to that conversation that helped move this forward so um i certainly really appreciate you uh joining us today and and talking about this uh upcoming event and more all right well thank you so much for having us brother have us back anytime. Love to talk to you some more. Very good. And that is Guillermo Perez, president of the Pittsburgh chapter of LACLA. Thanks again. Thank you. And that was our interview there with Guillermo Perez here on Essential Work, exploring the past, present, and future of jobs. This is Nathan Ruggles, and uh, once again, I'm joined here with our music guy, our communications guy. <laughs> Hello, Larry McCullough. <laughs> uh, thanks for being here, Larry. It's uh, good to have you back here, and it's exciting, this segment here today, because not just one, but two song selections uh, that Larry has here for us. And we're going to get to that here in just a minute. But first, uh, we need to talk about what's the latest with our sponsor, the Battle of Homestead Foundation, with all of its free online events. You can check them out at battleofhomestead.org. They're a group of workers, along with educators, historians, just everyday folks. They've made it their mission to work to preserve also promote, interpret, 
a people's history. And they draw on the significance of that dramatic labor conflict that took place in Homestead, Pennsylvania, back in 1892. And that site is just right outside of Pittsburgh where this podcast is produced. So uh, we invite you to check them out and consider joining as a member, consider a donation. It not only supports their work that they do, all their programming, but it supports this podcast. So Larry, talking about the Battle of Homestead Foundation, a lot of great events uh, they put on every month. What's coming up here in October? Well, it's going to be an evening of politics, history, and music. Mike Stout, who's a singer-songwriter, union leader, community activist, he will be discussing his new book, Homestead Steel Mill, The Final Ten Years. And that will be on Zoom Wednesday, October 14th. 7.30 to 9 p.m. Free tickets available now at eventbrite.com. And Mike, basically the book chronicles uh, from his insider uh, perspective, he was working there at that mill. The final years, 10 years of the mill, 1977 to 87, lots of activity going on. Uh, People were trying to save the mill and the, the sort of strife and the inner workings behind the scenes that Mike portrays in his book really have a lot to uh, teach us today. And that's really, I think, what he's going to talk about a lot in the event is just sort of the lessons from the past and how they apply today in terms of organizing and really just making sure essential workers are, you know, fairly treated. Yeah. Once again, that story of the struggle of workers, particularly in that era, a lot of powerful stories. And you're going to be there with a big hand in this event, right, Larry? Talking to Mike about his book. Well, I'm going to interview him. It's going to be like sort of a, uh, an actor studio kind of interview, <laughs> you know, where, <laughs> and there's going to be music interwoven. Mike has four music Excellent. videos. He's recorded something like 20 albums. Uh, and he probably has one up his sleeve right now uh, of original songs that are about local heroes and local champions and local causes. A lot of folks know Mike Stout. Uh, they've seen him singing really for the last 40 years all around, but, you know, politics or economics or civil rights or, you know, sort of deeper political topics. That's what's in this book. And um, it's more than just what happened at the steel mill. Actually, the front of the book and then the conclusion really talk about what what's happening now. It ties in the environment, the entire economic system. It may seem like just a little steel mill in a little Western Pennsylvania town, but it really sort of is a microcosm of so much that's happening now in our world today. And Mike's going to talk about it. Yeah. His story is a, a story of worker struggle that has been repeated over the years and in many places. And Mike is a longtime member of the Battle of Homestead Foundation, involved with the organization. And it'll be great to hear from him and hear the music and hear your interview. Definitely looking forward to that free event, right? Yeah. Just go to eventbrite.com, look up the Battle of Homestead Foundation. You'll see the event and get your front row Zoom seat. Excellent. Excellent. And uh, that's not the only thing that's going on a regular basis with the Battle of Homestead Foundation. Charlie McCullister, who is a commentator on this program, he has a regular weekly program. Yes, it's called Charlie's Monday Marker. And in 2016, uh, Dr. McAllister and Howard Scott, they wrote a book about labor history sites in Western Pennsylvania. There's something like 62 of them. And those are those kind of little blue historical markers you drive by or walk by real fast. They go into detail about the backgrounds of those events and those people. And this last week was uh, Queen Aliquippa, who is a leader of the Seneca Nation, basically lived in McKees Rocks for the Seneca Nation was in the 1750s. McKees uh, Rocks, just outside of, of Pittsburgh? And the rest of this month, he's going to be featuring our area's Native American history and heritage. And there's a lot of it. 
Oh, excellent. That'll be great to look forward to. So that last episode, I believe their 15th just came out this past Monday. And of course, we'll have another, another one to look forward to next week. Yeah, and you can find it on the Battle of Homestead Foundation website. It's also on the Battle of Homestead Foundation YouTube channel. Yeah, so head out to that YouTube and you know subscribe so you definitely get a notification uh, each and every week when those episodes come out. It's a great bit of history for each and every week. So all kinds of events. These are ongoing all the time. We'll make sure to keep you updated here. And you can, of course, head out to battleofhomestead.org for all the latest and greatest. Larry takes care of our Facebook page. It's a great place to keep up on events as well. And uh, speaking of social media, it's also a great place for you to share this podcast. So if you do like what you're hearing, make sure to share it out on Facebook or your favorite social media. Also, while you're at it, something else you can do for us is uh, head out to Apple Podcasts. And give us that five-star rating. Give us a nice positive review that really helps us out as well. Let's folks know about this podcast. When you go to EssentialWorkPodcast.org, you can check out all the different platforms we're on, in addition to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and more. And be sure to hit subscribe on those. You Make sure you get that notification and that download every time, each and every week, a new episode comes out. Also want to invite you to give us your feedback. Larry and I would love to hear whatever suggestions you might have, any ideas. Give us a call, 412-326-9435. Leave us a message. Give us your thoughts, tell what you're thinking. Give us a response to what you've been hearing or what you'd like to hear. Also, you can shoot us an email, bhfpodcast.nathan at gmail.com. Both that number and email in the episode description there, along with uh, all the website links as well. I'd also like to send out some thanks to all those who make this podcast possible. So we have a great program committee with the Battle of Homestead Foundation. Also, thanks going out to Angela Bachman, who we always depend on for additional assistance with editing and production. Her website is thatsoundgirl.com. Brittany Sheets is responsible for our logo. If you'd like to talk to her about uh, designing a logo for you as well, go to bsheetscreative.com. Also, we have an original theme song, and that was composed and recorded by Jason Kendall. You can uh, check him out and all the work that he's doing at jasonkendallproductions.com. So now for the highlight here, like I said, we've got kind of a special musical segment here Larry has for us with a couple musical selections, right? And all coming from the island of Puerto Rico, where a lot of wonderful history, as well as amazing variety of music, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Puerto Rico has an incredible variety of music. A lot of it that still survives today traces its roots to the music of the indigenous people, the Taino tribe, who lived there before Europeans arrived, and also from African slaves that were transported to the island starting in the 1600s. The native styles and the African styles ended up blending with all kinds of folk music from various regions of Spain. And there's an incredible variety of those. So over the last three centuries, there's been this really incredible fusion. And in the 1960s, a new musical movement arose. It was called Nueva Canción, or New Song. And it became very popular among young people, really all throughout Latin America. And in Puerto Rico, one of its prime exponents was a singer-songwriter named Roy Brown. I was actually privileged to interview Roy Brown once for a newspaper article. Yeah, um, he came to town, gave a concert, and he defined Nueva Canción as the following. And this is a quote I found in my old article. That term for a new generation of Latin American musicians and poets 
who use older Latin American musical forms to express ideas about contemporary social, political, and economic realities. And Mr. Brown and his contemporaries expressed a lot of ideas that reached a lot of people and inspired them to use their own cultural traditions to create change. That happened all over the, the Latin American world in the 60s and 70s. Well, absolutely. It's a time of great change uh, all over the place. Right? Definitely. And, and Roy Brown, actually the first segment we'll listen to is from his first album, He's still performing. He's uh, put out all kinds of albums uh, over the years. It's called Yo Protesto, I Protest. Uh, it was the name of the album. It was released in 1969, and the track is called Mr. Conmancana, uh, or Mr. with Baton. And the baton here refers to the weapon that was used by police to attack student demonstrators in Puerto Rico during the 1960s. Uh, song has some predict- predictably strong lyrics. Basically, it's a comment about you know the student demonstrations, the unrest that was happening uh, in Puerto Rico as well as uh, the United States and Europe, really all over the world. Roy Brown went on to collaborate with many great musicians, make many albums. Like I say, he's still performing. The night I saw him was in 1985 with another Nueva Cancion singer-songwriter, uh, Zoraida Santiago. And she is also performing actively today. They'd had a group in New York City during the late 70s called Iris Bocaneros that continued to refine their fusion of folk music uh, with with all kinds of uh, contemporary and, and native styles. And if you're actually looking for a really good introduction to this Nueva Cancion and Puerto Rican social action music, uh, the roots of it really are these albums by Roy Brown, Sarai de Santiago. Definitely good places to start. Oh, very good. Very good. Quite the career he's had. That's, <laughs> And he's still having it. Yeah, they re- actually released Yo Protesto, and uh, then they did a whole bunch of tribute concerts to it. He's really, really a powerful figure. Very inspirational. Okay, excellent. So we're going to take a quick listen to a, a bit of that song. Yes. Here we go. <laughs> Right. Well, very good, Larry. That's uh, appreciate uh, you getting that selection for us, giving a taste of not only the musical style of the combination of the different histories, but also something, again, that has that message to it, right? Mm-hmm. And that's not the only uh, musical selection you have for us today, right? Well, this Saturday at the Que Viva Clemente event, live music is going to be provided by a contemporary Puerto Rican group based in Toa Baja. Uh, their, their name is La R or Leira Capensa, The Reward. They're led by two brothers, Axel and Tito Rodriguez, and they play a wide range of styles from plena and cumbia, merengue, salsa, little rumba. Um, there's there's some videos of them on YouTube, and they are really, really pretty sensational. A lot of the videos actually are them playing sort of, you know, on the beach in Puerto Rico, and, and, and you can just see people just spontaneously getting up and dancing. And they also uh, really have... Um, you know, done some research and gotten involved with, with native Puerto Rican styles. Uh, the song we're going to hear here is Cuando Yo Canto Una Plena, When I Sing a Plena. En la vida llegan cosas que uno no se la 
las esperas La vida es como una fiera Muy terrible y peligrosa A veces es bien sabrosa A veces da mucha pena A veces en la faena del cansancio Yo me aturdo de mi problema me burlo Cuando yo canto una plena El sistema me presiona y los genios del gobierno han convertido en infierno la vida de esta persona. Yo trato y nada funciona, a veces no hay para la cena, pa' que se tornen amena. La situación que aquí explico, mi problema simplifico. Twenty twenty one has been a year of transition for all of us. At the Battle of Homestead Foundation, they have discovered new ways to advance their mission of heritage, education, and social action. They expanded their educational outreach to include a weekly online tour of people's history locations through the Charlie's Monday Marker video series, as well as far-reaching discussion of social and economic trends with the podcast Essential Work, the Past, Present, and Future of Jobs. They presented seven timely online public panels featuring nationally known authors and historians. Topics included workforce shifts from heavy industry to healthcare, the women's suffrage movement, uprooted immigrant neighborhoods, protest songs, and today's civil action movements, the 1921 Battle of Blair Mountain, historical roots of today's social philanthropy, and Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania's world-famous City Steps. They established a professionally archived labor history collection, thousands of documents, photos, recordings, and remembrances of labor history spanning decades. They co-sponsored the Blair Mountain Centennial in West Virginia, honoring a long-neglected part of U.S. history with a landmark Labor Day weekend of events. They built a new and more accessible website, which you should check out at battleofhomestead.org. They did all this with help, the essential support of all the individuals like you who enjoyed the programming, appreciate the hard work of the citizens, workers, educators, and historians that make it happen, and value their mission to preserve, interpret, and promote a people's history focused on the significance of the dramatic labor conflict at Homestead, Pennsylvania in 1892. In 2022, they'll present a new round of thought-provoking programming. Membership, along with special donations, is essential to their success. Annual membership is only $30, $20 for retirees or the underemployed, and just $10 for students. Join now at battleofhomestead.org. You can also choose to contribute at any of a number of special donor levels, and donations are tax-deductible. Membership also provides multiple free admissions to a variety of historical museums and sites in the greater Pittsburgh area. Check out the details at battleofhomestead.org. As this singular year comes to a close, while we still may have much to be thankful for, we also all see the urgent necessity of doing more to share our progressive labor history to a wider audience and inspire a new generation of activists and organizers. 
Your membership and engagement ensures that the battle of Homestead Foundation will continue to do just that. Show your support today at battleofhomestead.org. In solidarity, BHF thanks you and wishes you good health, positive spirits, and both peaceful and joyous days ahead.